Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. My name is Mr. Vosliatis. Today we will be discussing the Great Depression as well as the New Deal policies. This is the audio lecture for 7-5 Notes. Here we go. Okay, so we're going to briefly go over again the causes as well as the effects of the Great Depression, which lasts between 1929 and 1933. Uh, the reason why we're doing this is to make sure that we can understand how the New Deal attempts or actually does address some of the problems that occurred in the 1920s. So the long-term causes that we should briefly go over is uneven distribution of income, which again shows that 5% of the rich will own 33% of the income. This is going to be significant when the crash uh, happens. The majority of Americans are not going to have um, enough of a, a, a capital cushion, so to speak, to kind of rebound from unemployment or uh, a drain in all their savings. So we kind of talk about the uneven distribution of income because when the economic crisis hits, it's going to really hit the working class really, really hard. Um, the demand for products, of course, during this time will decline, and this will lead to massive layoff of workers. Stock market speculation due to laissez-faire uh, economic policies in the progressive uh, administrations of Wilson, Taft, and Roosevelt. If you recall, uh, the, the, the remaining three Republican administrations of Warren G. Harding, uh, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover, they're going to appoint men uh, in charge of these regulatory agencies or administrations, and they're going to have a very... Um, loose or relaxed philosophy on business. And because of very limited oversight and regulation, it's going to encourage an environment of speculation. Things like buying on the margin, buying stocks uh, when you don't have the capital to kind of pay back banks or even stock uh, companies. So this is going to kind of create a web of debt and liability that's going to be very significant when it all comes crashing down. Excessive use of credit um, is also going to be spurned by really low interest rates by the Federal Reserve. Again, people that are working for the Federal Reserve under Republican administrations will be um, making their decisions based on the concept of laissez-faire economics, limited government intervention in this. And this is going to create um, massive use of credit where many people are going to take out loans from the banks that they may not necessarily be able to pay back. Weak farm economy since the uh, post World War One uh, recession, but will continue to go on in the 1920s. Overproduction of crops will lead to low prices, and of course, farmers won't be able to pay off their debts that they will kind of have to have no choice but to take on by the banks. Um, this is also going to be compounded by the fact of tariffs that will be placed to kind of promote American manufacturing, but because of the lack of international markets, a lot of these farmers are not going to be able to kind of sell their surplus goods abroad, and thereby it's going to further kind of kill the demand and, low, and lower the prices. Uh, and finally, as I said before, government policies, tariffs, as I mentioned before, the Fort McCumber tariff, as well as the Dawes plan, which is um, a, an attempt to kind of 
jumpstart the German economy or at least stabilize it to keep it from failing and uh, failing to, per- to make reparations that they had to have. The Treaty of Versailles after World War I uh, basically stipulated that the German government had to pay a significant amount of money uh, for the damages costed by the, the conflict. Uh, the problem was Germany couldn't really afford to pay those back. So what the Dawes plan was, was the United States um, financial uh, policy or strategy of keeping Germany afloat by giving them a significant amount of loans. And the idea was that that would jumpstart the German economy, and with that, the Germans would be able to pay off the allied reparations that they needed to do. And then with that, the allied economy would then be stabilized. And then that those allies, Britain and France, would be able to pay us back from all the oil and um you know, war munitions that we sold uh, throughout the war since 1914, uh, 1916. So this is uh, sort of like a merry-go-round of debt. And the idea was that the United States kept on being the supplier, the creditor, and everyone's economy would kind of be uh, heavily dependent on the United States. So it was fine up to the 1920s and 1929, but when the stock market crashed, this is going to have a ripple effect and have a significant impact on not only our economy, but world economies abroad. Um, as I said before, of course, officials appointed in federal positions will also be known as business friendly. The immediate causes or the spark that you can say kind of started this all was the Wall Street crash uh, known as Black Thursday and Tuesday in 1929. But like most stock market crashes, the effects of the depression will not be really felt until like 1930, 1931. So just keep that in mind. Uh, when the crash starts to reach its zenith, gross national product, the GNP, which is um, one of the major metrics of I guess testing out the uh, the national economy, how how well are we, how well or how valuable uh, we are as a nation as a whole, will drop from 104 million to 56 million in just four years. Uh, 20% of all bank- banks will close as a result of bank runs and as well as um, doing very um, poorly uh, calculated or mismanaged uh, investments in the stock market. Uh, the money supply. Uh, of course, will contract by 30%. And by 1933, 25% or one-fourth of the American working force will be unemployed. This is not including farmers who will have such a higher staggering number. Of course, many Americans at this point by 1933 will see a need for stronger regulatory government. Prior to uh, Roosevelt's ascension to power, however, however uh, Herbert Hoover kind of inherited or became the face of the economic crisis. Um, and he really, at first, is going to not do much because he's going to fear that the government assistant would destroy American sense of rugged individualism. And while in retrospect this seemed very short-sighted, you can understand at the time um, how he would believe this. I mean, prior to the great you know, stock market crash of 1929, most of the recessions prior to this, 1907, 1893, uh, 1872, then you can go back to 1837, most American recessions could have been ironed out on its own. And because of the prevailing philosophy of laissez-faire economics, uh, Hoover was afraid that government intervention would do worse or would worsen some of the effects. So what he decides to do eventually by 1930 is, with the help of Congress, uh, sign Holly Smoot Tariff Act into effect, which becomes the highest tariff in history, and it will increase the taxes on foreign inputs from 31% to 49%. The, of course, the Europe will respond by passing high tariffs on their own, which would create an even further um, escalation to economic problems in this country. So Holly Smoot Tariff was designed initially to kind of help protect American manufacturing, especially from the stock market crash, but it kind of backfired. Um, he's going to, again, 
proposed a debt moratorium in 1931, which will be a suspension of debts incurred from the war um, and from the DOS plan as well. And of course, this is going to do a little to um, dull the blow of the international economic crisis that we have. Soon, Hoover kind of realizes this, and he kind of starts to empower the Federal Farm Board that will be already in effect to um, provide more subsidies um, to farmers by stabilizing their crops as prices on crops. So giving more relief for farmers so that they can in turn maybe produce a little less and maybe kind of curb the surplus products that we're seeing. Um, Congress, of course, during his tenure, will create the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which will be a federally funded government-owned corporation. It's going to provide emergency loans to faltering in uh, industries such as the railroads, banks, insurance companies, and financial institutions. Pretty much any type of industry that are major employers to the American worker, they can't fall or fail because if they do, then that would lead to massive layoffs uh, and uh, the unemployment rate. So this is something that Hoover tried to do, and the idea was that all the benefits and all the low-interest loans um, given to these industries would trickle down to the smaller businesses and eventually to the public. Um, farmers, of course, are going to band together uh, to stop banks from foreclosing and evicting people from their homes. Of course, when banks... Um, need capital, they're going to call in their debts. And when people can't pay their debts back, they're just going to um, foreclose your home because a lot of mortgages are based on loans that you would get from paying your house. So a lot of times the farmers are going to form their own farm holiday association, which is going to uh, be an attempt to reverse the drop in prices. And it'll be an effort that would unfortunately end in violence. So because of these governmental policies are not really helping, um, people are going to take matters into their own hands, especially farmers who are really significantly impacted by the Depression. World War I veterans are also impacted, and they're going to ask for their promised bonuses um, a little bit earlier. They were previously promised World War I bonuses uh, by 1945, but because of the Depression, they're going to march to Washington, D.C. to demand for those now. Uh, veterans will camp out near the Capitol, and unfortunately, they'll start clashing with police. That will lead to the death of two veterans. Um, Hoover, of course, in order to kind of pacify the tension, will order the army to break up the encampment, led by Douglas MacArthur, which we will talk about later in the next podcast. He will lead an army with tear gas and tanks to break up the veterans. Um, this is horrible in terms of the PR for the United States. This is going to symbolize the failure of the administration to not only meet the concerns of and demands of the public, but also the people that sacrificed and laid down their lives to defend this country. And now the, the government's not even helping them out in their time of need. So, of course, this is going to reach a fever pitch through the election of 1932. Government Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt is going to be the Democratic candidate, and he's going to, of course, run against the incumbent, which is President Herbert Hoover. Roosevelt will win by almost 60% of the vote. Uh, Hoover will still be president for four months after the election, and because of this, Hoover will be known as the lame duck president. This is a term used to describe presidents that are ending the ending the near of their reign or their tenure, and there's really not much they can do in terms of policy. The 20th Amendment will be ratified. Um, in 1933 of October to shorten this period between presidential elections and the inauguration. Um, and this will set the presidential term for January 20th, the one that we have for today. So um, it was a little bit longer than what we are now previously used to, uh, what we're used to now. Um, and this amendment would be ratified. So FDR 
is going to win for a variety of reasons. Um, he has some sort of political pedigree. He's related to the very popular Theodore Roosevelt. He has he became um, a New York State legislator when he was very, very young and back in the 20s. And he has also some experience as U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Um, he's going to be the Democratic nominee uh, for vice president. He's going to run with James Cox under against Harding, and he involved he lost. He's going to kind of uh, jettison his career during this time. However, a year after that, he'll be paralyzed with polio. He will overcome the stigma and the setbacks of this disease through perseverance and, of course, charisma, and he will help shape his public persona during a time of crippling crisis. So while not um, every American was aware that he was crippled, um, he kind of had uh, you know, a larger-than-life personality to compensate for his physical impairments. By 1928, he will be elected governor of New York, and he's going to institute a variety of welfare programs and relief programs for the homeless that will win him uh, critical acclaim for the working class. So he does have some sort of background, and this jettisons his career into the national politics by the election in 1932. So what was the New Deal? Well, it was operated under the three R's. It's basically the philosophy of relief, recovery, reform. Relief means basically if you want to get the metaphor of the economy being a bleeding patient or significantly injured patient, and FDR being something of a doctor, um, relief would be something to stop the bleeding or the hemorrhaging. So relief would be in the form of subsidies or loans or money, and uh, it would be provided for the people just to kind of I, uh, keep them alive or afloat and survive during the crisis. Recovery um, would be for business and the overall economy. So think of that more as the stitching. Um, so, you know, the relief you want to keep the hemorrhaging from, from continuing. Recovery would be the stitching as well as the Band-Aid. And, of course, reform of the American Economic Institution is, is providing policies that would prevent such a devastating um, injury from ever happening again. So um, as you get deeper into the R's, um, they go from more temporary to more permanent solutions, more, um, you know, superficial to more substantial, uh, you know, policies, and of course, more popular to more controversial. I mean, very few people are going to disagree with the relief programs that he's going to initiate with Congress in the early 1930s. But as we start to enact some reforms, specifically with um, the economic institutions or industries, you know, regulations and codes, this is what's going to kind of suffer the ire of some of the staunch conservatives during this time. So as we go through the R's, um, his New Deal becomes more controversial. So it's important to understand that the New Deal... Um, is not attacked or criticized wholesale. It's going to be criticized um, based on time, context, and and what kind of R we're talking about. So the formation of the Brain Trust, the who were the people that helped them, were these other uh, progressive advisors. And they're basically going to be a team of intellectuals and professionals to help initiate his agenda. Very similar to the progressives in the early 1900s. These people are going to be made up of um, quite a diverse coalition of reformers. They're going to be African Americans, Catholics, believe it or not, they're still very much in the minority and going to be viewed as uh, heavily suspicious. Um, in fact, we're going to have Al Smith, uh, the first Catholic governor of New York uh, in the late 1920s, and 
he's really going to be um, losing out against Herbert Hoover because of his Catholic upbringing. Jews, of course, are going to suffer the same uh, uh, stigma of a religious minority, and women are going to be invited into the Brain Trust for the first time ever. One woman in, in particular, Frances Perkins, she's going to be the Secretary of Labor, and she's going to be one of the few surviving uh, cabinet members in the Brain Trust. So he is uh, FDR is going to really invite a diverse uh, array of people to help him, you know, espouse or implement his policies. So it's quite liberal and progressive for, for its time. Um, the first 100 days kind of is a phrase that describes the first 100 days that FDR was in office, and he kind of hit the ground running for a variety of reasons. One, because of the significance in the crisis. Uh, it demanded immediate solutions. And two, it provided a psychological reassurance to the public that the federal government is actively doing something. Keep in mind, Her Herbert Hoover even though it's not entirely his fault for the crash, really seemed, at least publicly, to kind of drag his feet in helping the public. So FDR wanted to counter that, especially for him and his party, by hitting the ground running. Um, he's going to call a special session of Congress, something that is not very usual during this time. And because he has a Democratic majority in Congress, um, he's going to have a lot of quick passages of legislation. During this time, Congress will enact more legislation than any single Congress in history. So this is going to be a rapid fire of policies um, due to the majority uh, of the of, of you know of Democrats in both the House and the Senate. So what is the first wave of the New Deal? Well, he's a re uh, originally going to want to establish trust in the banks. That's pretty much his number one priority. After all, when the banks kind of uh, stock market hit, the, the banks kind of closed down as a result of people running to the bank to get their, their funds, as well as the banks losing a lot of money from very risky investments. So he's going to establish what we call a bank holiday. And that's basically he's going to order all the banks to close until they pass a very, very high inspection of the federal government. And this is obviously going to be meant to restore confidence in the bank's until they were kind of solvent. That, in other words, they were sustainable or independent. And this right away kind of gave the sense that the federal government is going to do something about this. Um, he's going to kind of assuage some of the public concerns uh, of kind of closing the banks or using or wielding the federal government with his fireside chat. So he's going to inform the people of his agenda and how he's, ex he's exactly going to implement that. And because of this line of communication, it's going to be very psychologically reassuring to the people. This is not a federal government that's doing something without respecting the fears of the people. He's going to be known with the quote, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. And because of this, He's going to be one of the few politicians to take advantage of the new medium of radio um, to win um, popularity. And this is going to have a huge impact on how um, politicians, you know, uh, get across to their voters. So that's something that's important as well. Uh, the second thing he's going to do is he's going to try to uh, generate more revenue. And he's going to do that by uh, immediately repealing the 18th Amendment or the uh, Prohibition Against Alcohol. The 18th will be repealed by the ratification of the 21st Amendment. And that was the hope, uh, along with the Beer and Wine Revenue Act, which would hope to kind of raise some of the taxes that he might need for some of the other policies of relief. Um, after that, after trying to close down the banks and reassuring the people that he's going to do something about it, he's going to start uh, offering uh, policies that will provide direct relief. So the EBRA, or the Emergency Banking Relief Act, will authorize the government to examine the finances of the bank and open closed banks that pass inspection. 
the very, very important Glass-Steagall Act is going to increase regulation of banks and limit how banks could invest customers' money. So now he's, there's going to be a dis, uh, distinction between commercial banks, banks that are used by the wide public uh, for mortgages or basic credit, um, and investment banks. So the institutions that you want to throw money at so you can kind of gamble or or invest in the stock market. Those are going to be two distinct institutions. Before this, there was no wall of separation between the two. So the Glass-Steagall's kind of basically prohibit commercial banks from using your money, um, you know, irresponsibly. And it really to send home the fact that the banks are here for you and they're trustworthy institutions, the Glass-Steagall Act will authorize the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, which will guarantee individual bank deposits in the event of another bank crisis. So if there's another bank run, the federal government will basically reimburse your losses. So no no more losses of your savings account, um, and this really had a very good impact on the American um, who kind of kept all their money underneath the bed. Uh, the gold standard will be restricted to international transactions only. Again, something to address the fact that as the economy is becoming more complex, we need something a little bit less restrictive or finite um, to base it off of. There's only a finite amount of gold, and the U.S. dollar is inflating substantially. So this is going to be one of the other reasons or fiscal uh, policies to kind of relax some of the problems that we've seen. Um, the uh, FARA, or the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, will offer land, uh, grants to states and local governments to operate soup kitchens and other relief programs for the jobless and homeless. So the belief was that you uh, filter all this money to the states, and the states would know what to do with that. So we're going to see more of this type of um, this type of uh, activity later on in the 1960s as well as the 70s with Great Society and uh, the Block Grant Program uh, authorized by Richard Nixon. So we'll talk more about that later. The Public Works Administration was uh, an agency designed to hire uh, unemployed workers to build roads, bridges, uh, dams, and other public works. Um, very similar to that was the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which will employ young men uh, on projects of federal lands. So you know, making sure that trees are planted um, to kind of renew um, the, uh, the atmosphere, as well as testing for soil, testing for erosion, um, you know, doing good sound policy of testing for clean water. Again, conservation uh, to conserve or save land for later consumption. This is going to put a lot of men in, in at work. And it's going to kind of have not only an economic but psychological impact to the nation as well. Tennessee Valley Authority will give electricity uh, and, and, and dams and flooding um, is going to mitigate flooding and erosion um, by basically modernizing the Tennessee Valley uh, area. At this point, it was highly... Um, um, you know, rural and uh, not very modernized. And because of that, there were a lot of businesses that weren't really going to invest in that. And FDR and New Dealers saw it um, revitalizing this area as a key interest to the nation. So he's going to kind of implement uh, the operation of electric power plants in this region so people can have electricity. And this was, of course, hopefully going to attract a large number of small, uh, small businesses um, and others to come to this area as well. Um, the, in 1933, uh, Congress will pass the National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA, and the administration, the NRA, um, and this is going to suspend antitrust laws. So this is going to uh, actually be good for the corporations initially, 
it's going to allow them to kind of uh, operate without such heavy regulation that we've seen in the Wilson administration. But it's also, however, going to set codes for wages, hours of work, and levels of production and prices. So while it's going to take away some regulations that were restrictive or seemed restricted by industrialists, the federal government itself is going to set some of the wages or at least create minimum requirements so that the average the average, wor- average worker's worker. Additionally, it's going to give right, workers the rights to form unions and bargain collectively with its respective industry. And of course, because of this and its heavy interference in the private sector or the free market, the Supreme Court will eventually declare this part of the New Deal unconstitutional in 1935. The Agricultural Adjustment Administration and Act will be initiated during this time as well. It's going to encourage farmers to reduce production by offering government loans or subsidies to every acre a farmer plowed under. So basically paid these farmers not to grow their crops or set strict quotas so that they would not uh, create the surplus and the... um, the subsequent drop in prices. Of course, this too will be declared unconstitutional in the Supreme Court decision because, again, we have the concept of the federal government intervening in intrastate commerce, not interstate commerce. And uh, and more importantly, it's the executive branch doing this um, to many, especially the four uh, horsemen, as they were called, the four conservative justices in the Supreme Court, um, staunchly uh, you know, uh, wanted to battle against these policies. Uh, because they kind of violated the constitutional principles that were established, uh, you know, the the separation between powers of the federal uh, legislative and and judicial branches were being threatened during this time, uh, according to them, and that's what kind of led the NIRA as well as the AAA to be declared unconstitutional. CWA basically added to the PWA um, and other programs for creating jobs, Um, They're going to hire laborers for temporary construction jobs, sponsored again by the federal government. Um, The Security Exchange Commission, very important, is going to create more regulation in the stock market. Um, uh, Now, companies that are going to engage in in investment are going to be required to uh, disclose audits and um, to its customers or its investors. So this level of transparency was designed to kind of decrease the level of insider trading or speculation that we've seen in the 1920s. We still have the Security Exchange Commission today. While they are understaffed and uh, overworked, they do provide some sort of vanguard for some um, corrupt uh, investment practices that we see in, in Wall Street today. The Federal Housing Administration will, of course, will give the construction industry as well as homeowners a boost by insuring bank loans for building new houses and repairing old ones. So this is also good for some small businesses that are going to benefit from these lo- uh, low-interest loans um, that are offered uh, through the federal government. So for the most part, the first wave is going to be viewed pretty positively with the exception of the AAA and the NRA. And that kind of leads into the second wave of the New Deal. The WPA kind of is even a bigger relief agency. It's going to employ 3.4 million men and women to construct new bridges, roads, airports, and public buildings. Unemployed artists will be added to this, um, not only to kind of express what's up, what's happening during this time, but it's also kind of used as um, a form of like uh, propaganda, if you will, because if you you get paid uh, to do this by the federal government, chances are these these histo- these historians or these artists, and musicians are going to express um, positively these policies, and that in fact is going to uh, help FDR. 
uh, win more popularity within his constituency. The Resettlement Administration will provide loans to sharecroppers, um, people that are disproportionately African-American, as well as tenant farmers, uh, and they're going to establish federal camps for migrant workers. If you recall uh, books like Of Mice and Men, um, that features fictional characters like George and Lenny by George Steinbeck, uh, excuse me, John Steinbeck, uh, features these migrant workers going from state to state looking for jobs uh, as well as a place to stay. Um, now with the RA, they're going to have some sort of area um, by the federal government. The National Labor Relations Act, Wagner Act, by 1935, will replace the provisions instituted by the NRA. So the federal government will again try to pass a law that kind of meets the constitutional criteria by the four horsemen. It will guarantee workers a right to join a union and bargain collectively. It will outlaw business practices that were unfair to labor, such as price gouging or kind of um, you know open shops or the laws that allowed uh, scabs to kind of take advantage of unions and whatnot. So that's going to outlaw any of those things. Um, and it's going to establish a new agency known as the National Labor Relations Board. This is an agency that will be the arbitrator or the mediator between capital and labor. And a lot of people saw this as not only a win to unions, but in a way you can argue is a good thing for industrial uh, industrialists or capital as well because now you have the government trying to ameliorate some disputes that usually might end in boycotting or worse, strikes that would cost lots and lots of money in terms of loss of production. Um, however, some people are going to be very, very upset with this, particularly capitalists who, again, see this as an overreaching of federal government, and the Supreme Court will, um, will be viewed, uh, will review the constitutionality of the Wagner Act. However, they will allow the Wagner Act, and they declared it constitutional, uh, so it passes the scrutiny of the four horsemen and the rest. The Rural Electri Electrification Administration is what it states. It's an agency that will provide loans for electrical cooperatives to supply power in rural areas, very similar to the TVA. Federal taxes will raise substantially in order to kind of, um, kind of pay for all of this. And it's going to be on the wealthy few. Um, it's also going to be additional taxes on inheritance property as well as capital gains tax. Now, what that means is a tax on gains that was made by investment in the stock market. So this is um, going to upset, understandably, a lot of people in the upper class. But again, at this point, the uh, you know the new dealers are not going to rely on deficit spending until much later. At this point, FDR is very much interested in balancing the budget, and he's going to do so by raising taxes. Um, in 1935, the Social Security Act will be passed. This reform will affect all Americans for generations to come, even today. This is going to basically create a federal insurance program that will collect payments from employer employers and employees throughout people's work and careers. So a portion of your paycheck, a small bit of it, would go into a giant piggy, piggy pot or national piggy bank, as, as it were, and that piggy bank would be saved specifically um, for funds for, for citizens over 65. So the idea was that as a working adult, you'd pay into a fund that would pay for the elderly with respects to their disability or their, uh, you know, their insurance. And by the time you become uh, 65 or older, you would be able to apply for Social Security. So you, everyone receives the benefits, but the youth is going to be paying for the elderly and, and vice versa. Um, today, there is some, uh, I guess, scrutiny about this because at this point, there are way more people that are older or above the 65 mark. 
then there are people that are paying into the system. So this is due to the baby boomer generation that we'll talk about. But this kind of casts doubt on the significance or the viability of the Social Security Act. But I wonder if when the population kind of stabilizes, um, are these going to be legitimate claims or legitimate concerns? So we'll wait and see. But right now, recently, it's definitely under uh, scrutiny. The election of 1936, um, again, is going to be between President Roosevelt, who's Democrat, and against Alf Landon, the Republican. Roosevelt will win with more than 60%, again, of the popular vote. The Democratic Party will now be seen as a reform party, and African Americans are going to begin to switch party lines. If you recall, African Americans, since Reconstruction, are going to vote Republican because that was the party of Lincoln. Uh, The New Deal is going to offer, um, albeit very limitedly, it's going to be mostly for white working class people, but it's still enough to make African Americans start to realize that the Democratic Party is for the working poor, which many of them were at this time. So this is where we begin to see the slow transition of the black voting bloc moving away from the Republicans to the Democratic Party, and we're going to see the full um, transition after the Civil Rights Act in 1964. We'll talk more about that later. So obviously, while the New Deal was very popular with the working class, there are going to be very, very a lot of opponents to the New Deal. The liberal critics will, uh, you know, people made up of socialists are going to basically criticize him for not doing enough. Um, and, and, and in fact, actually using New Deal policies like, um, you know, the resettlement administration to kind of boost the constructions and the early provisions of the NRA um, to actually help a big business at the exploitation of the working class. So believe it or not, uh, FDR is going to be coming under fire for helping capitalists um, and which many socialists viewed as uh, undeserving of support. Um And a lot of other people are going to attack him for not helping enough for the working poor and minorities and elderly women. So while FDR was too busy trying to stabilize industries like the banking um, institutions and Wall Street, the people or the institutions that got us in trouble in the first place, he wasn't doing enough to help, uh, you know, the minorities or elderly or women. Now, the conservatives are going to argue the exact opposite. They're going to argue that the New Deal had way too much... um, you know, the, the, the federal government had way too much authority in, in the realm of economics. Programs such as the WPA and the Wagner Act bordered on the p- principles of socialism or even communism because, again, you have the government hiring workers and they're becoming basically employers themselves. And the Wagner Act basically um, guaranteed unions to exist within the society. And keep in mind, since the first Red Scare and the rise of the USSR, the concept of unionization while slowly will become American over time, is still going to be seen with suspicion, especially by people in the upper uh, upper classes. Um, the there's too many increased regulations, and the second wave pro union stance pro union stance is going to be seen as a, a burden to uh, the free market um, and the laissez faire philosophy that many people on the upper class really champion. Uh, Deficit financing, or Keynesian spending, as it will be later known as, is the concept of the government uh, spending money that it doesn't have, so running a tab, so to speak, for these policies. And a lot of uh, fiscal conservatives are worried about the the overwhelming – the going over budget and and, uh, making – and really worried about – uh, not being able to pay this back. So they viewed this as fiscally irresponsible, so to speak. So they're very worried about that. 
uh, conservative Democrats and Republicans are going to form an anti-New Deal organization known as the American Liberty League, and they will avow to stop the New Deal from subverting the U.S. economy and political system. So there is um, some sort of resistance to the New Deal during this time. I don't want to give the impression that working all, all people uh, enjoy it, but um, the fact that he wins 60% of the popular vote tells me, at the very least, that the working class are going to very much like this and appreciate this. Of course, during this time, and uh, the high controversial effects of the New Deal will give rise to demagogues, people that will comment on and, and capitalize on the fears of, of people about the New Deal. So people like Father Charles Coughlin will attack the New Deal and will increasingly call it something like the, New, the Jew Deal. Um, he's going to make increasingly anti-Semitic and fascist remarks um, that will kind of embolden the far right during this time. Um, again, you have to understand that uh, fascism during this time is not going to be seen as uh, abhorrent to many Americans. In fact, some people are going to applaud it as a wonderful remedy to the Bolshevik communism that they've seen uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. Dr. Francis Townshend on the other side, so if the father Charles Coughlin was on the far right, Dr. Francis Townshend's on the far left, and he's going to be one of the people that are the brainchild of the Social Securities Act. So FDR and the New Dealers are going to take his ideas, so to speak, and um, he's going to continue to be somebody that will champion for a greater amount of rates for the Social Securities Act. Uh, Huey Long is going to really push for this Share Our Wealth program. Think of him as the 1930s Bernie Sanders, and he's going to want every American to get a minimum annual income of $5,000. That seems very uh, low, but in terms of 1930s standards, it's quite high. And the reason for this universal income is that if you give Americans um, the, 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 you know, what they need, if you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, if you give them what they need, um, then they would invest themselves into what they should ought to be, right? They would have enough time and the expenses um, to kind of self-enlighten and self-actualize themselves. So this is a very, uh, you know, eye in the pie, uh, you know, eye in the sky um, sort of policy. Um, but universal income is still something that is quite debated even today in today's modern circles. Of course, conservatives are going to look at this as this is absolutely socialism. So I want to mention that there are... Um, political um, extremism that is happening as a result of New Deal policies, and everyone has something to comment about it. Um, the Supreme Court is also going to find ways of trying to combat some of the New Deal policies. As mentioned before, it's going to dissolve agencies such as the AAA and the NRA. Uh, Roosevelt, of course, is going to review the Supreme Court, particularly the horsemen, the four horsemen, as getting in the way of progress. So he's going to propose a bill called the Judiciary Reorganization Bill in 1937. This bill will pro be proposed and authorize the president to appoint a Supreme Court um, justice um, any, for any additional justice um, that was older than 70 and a half years old. Why 70 and a half? I find that arbitrary, but that's the rule. Um, of course, this would provide an opportunity for Roosevelt appointing justices that were more aligned with his views and more likely to uphold the constitutionality of these laws under his administration. So it was basically an attempt to uh, court pack or circumvent the judicial branch, that the necessary check and balance that was outlined by our founding fathers. And um, because of this, Democrats and Republicans alike will not allow this path to pass through Congress. Roosevelt uh, will still 
despite the death of this bill, will end up appointing eight out of nine justices to the Supreme Court uh, anyway, because the justices were wary of going against public opinion for so long, and they did not want to undermine the power and legitimacy of the Supreme Court. So, ironically enough, even despite the fact that FDR wanted to, to pack the court, so to speak, a lot of these conservative justices are either going to retire during their tenure or they're going to go along and approve of the New Deal policies, even if they don't, they didn't personally like it because they were afraid of, um, you know, going against public opinion for so long. They did not want the public opinion or the executive branch to, you know, to be emboldened to reject some of their decisions. If you think and recall back to Worcester v. Georgia, when Andrew Jackson basically ignored John Marshall's decision to uh, maintain the sovereignty of the Cherokee tribes in Georgia, um, you can understand that the you know the the power we put in the judicial branch is really kind of uh, abstract and not based on anything. I mean, if you go back to Article Three of the Constitution, that basically outlines the powers and the provision of the judicial branch. There's nothing in there that authorizes judicial review. It doesn't say, and, you know, the Supreme Court has the power for judicial review. It doesn't say that. So you could argue that the entire basis or power of the judicial branch is predicated based on one decision, Marbury v. Madison, in which Marshall kind of uh, justified the power of judicial review. So a lot of the Supreme Court justices are aware of that, and so they didn't want to upset the public too much or delegitimize their power too much. So they kind of went along with some of his New Deal policies, despite the fact that some kind of criticized it. Um, and also, we're going to have um, some effects, of course, to the New Deal. So uh, one big effect is the rise of unions. It's going to, union membership, because of the Wagner Act, is going to rise from like over 3 million to 10 million by 1941. Um, this is going to be really significant because now unions are going to be more legitimized in the eyes of the American public. Um, and because of this legitimacy, um, membership is going to be a little bit harder to get into, right? So let me put it this way. When unions were seen as a pariah or an enemy of democracy or society, uh, white union workers were more likely to ally with black workers or even female workers to get their interests across. Now that there is a chance for white workers to get something, politically speaking and economically speaking, they're going to be now more competitive or exclusionary in their membership because they don't want to lose the potential clout that they've gained. So white specialized and skilled workers will remain in the American Federation of, the, of Labor, as as you mentioned, as you've heard or remember, that was led by Samuel Gompers back in the 1900s. And multiracial or unskilled workers in automobile steel and the southern textile industries will split from the AFL and form the Congress of Industrial Organization, or the CIO, uh, with John L. Lewis as their president. So they're going to split. So there's going to be a split in the AFL as a result of the legitimization of union members. And the CIO is going to be known as, you know, the rowdy union, the one, the unions kind of like the Knights of Labor that we've, uh, we heard about during the Gilded Age. And the AFL will be known as the, you know, good union or the union that's patriotic. Now, I have to make this known. Um, both, all workers want rights. So if you look at workers, even themselves are on like a hierarchy, you know, a pyramid. 
uh, at the top are going to be white working class workers, and at the bottom are going to be black or multiracial workers. So, you know, the CIO is going to fight for their interests, and those are not going to really be met um, for quite some time. But despite all that, they're going to be very powerful, and the unions are going to be emboldened, and they're going to do a lot of strikes. For instance, in 1937, there's going to be a huge General Motors strike, and the president uh, and governor, the president himself, FDR and the governor of Michigan will refuse to respond to the company's request of breaking up the sit-down strike with troops. Um, because of that, because of the president and the governor looking the other way during the strike, workers are going to be allowed even greater rights. And they're going to reorganize themselves under the United Auto Workers Union, or the UAW. So now think about this. The Wagner Act basically guarantees their rights to strike and to collectively bargain. And now you have the governor of Michigan and the president basically turning a blind eye to the automobile industry. And of course, this is going to be a huge victory for the unions, and they're going to gain greater rights because the, the, the industrialists or their employers will have no choice but to strike a deal. U.S. Steel Corporation will voluntarily recognize one of the CIO unions. Despite violent resistance to the CIO unions from the smaller companies, by 1941, almost all steel companies agreed to deal with the CIO. So, you know, in the environment provided by the New Deal, the federal government is going to be very pro-union. Um, industrialists are going to calculate it's easier just to deal and, and, and exist in the current framework than try to battle this out because... If you keep on resisting, there's going to be more strikes, more boycotts. That's going to disrupt more productivity. It's going to really hurt their profits as well. So this is a big moment in union history because the New Deal uh, basically creates an environment of legitimacy that was not really kind of seen as much. I mean, of course, you had the Clayton Antitrust Act with Wilson. And you had uh, Teddy Roosevelt trying to arbitrate between anthracite coal, coal strike in 1902, but you're not going to get it with, with, with so much across so many industries like you do with FDR and the New Deal. Um, of course, the last, the last New Deal will pass to strengthen workers' rights. The Fair Labor Standards Act will place several regulations on business and in interstate commerce. The minimum wage will be fixed at 40 cents an hour. A maximum work week of 40 hours with extra pay, time and a half for overtime. And of course, child labor restrictions, laws on hiring people under 16-year-old will be in effect. Again, these are things that we now recognize as a political reality. But back then, this was kind of revolutionary. This completely tampered with the free market principle of allowing uh, employers to set their own wages or set up their own um, terms uh, for their workers. But now uh, respecting the workers' right, respecting their time um, is going to be enforced by the federal government. And, and over time, even Republican administrations will respect these rules and regulations. So it's not something that will be only exclusively favored by uh, the Democrats. Over time, we have a tendency to just accept federal legislations and policies. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, it's going to be a little bit more accepted over time. The Supreme Court will reverse early ruling of child labor laws and uphold the provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So it's interesting that even um, the Supreme Court will kind of uphold this. But keep in mind, this is going to be around the time that uh, FDR will appoint his justices to the court. So this, some people have suggested it's because of FDR choosing the Supreme Court justices that are doing it. So that's why FDR's New Deal is going to be shrouded in controversy due to a lot of uh, political activity. The last phase of the New Deal is going to be between 1933 and 1937, and 
we're going to see the, econo the economy showing some gradual signs of improvement. Banks are going to be stabilized because people are trusting and putting money back into it. Business earnings are going to be increasing because, again, people can now spend money, especially from uh, agencies that employ people. And unemployment will drop from 25% to 15%. Um, so while there is gradual improvement, by the winter of 1937, there's going to be another brief recessionary period. Why? The Social Security tax will reduce consumer spending, and reduced spending for relief and public works will relieve, will uh, lead to like less spending in the overall economy. So some people have suggested that while the economic New Deal, the New Deal policies were economically effective, um, other other more controversial uh, policies like the Social Security tax is going to get in the way of some of the original policies. Uh, I'll let you decide on what you think on that. Roosevelt decides to abandon the concept of balancing the budget at this time, and he's going to adopt, as I said before, Keynesian economics. This deficit spending was helpful in difficult times because the government needed to spend well above tax revenues in order to initiate economic growth. Prime and pump method of jumpstarting the economy. I use the word jumpstart to kind of go back to that metaphor of the sick patient. If a patient is, you know, if the patient is the economy, the, the, the national economy, Keynesian economics would be the defibrillator, the thing that quite literally electrifies or jumpstarts the the you know the unconscious patient, and that was the idea that you would spend money that you don't have to jumpstart the economy, and that the the GNP would rise steadily up, and that would be enough to kind of offset the deficit. Over time, we would be able to kind of pay back the debt. But over time, despite all this, the support of the New Deal will fade away. Uh, why? Because economic issues will remain. The core packing controversy will be really bad for FDR and the New Dealers that will be seen as in increasingly tyrannical in trying to circumvent the judicial branch and also create um, a subordinate role for Congress. Keep in mind, all these policies were outlined or heavily um, suggested by the executive branch, not by the legislative branch. Um, in 1938... There will be a reduced Democratic majority in Congress. Elected Republicans and conservative Democrats will block further New Deal legislation. And of course, the fear of fascism will outweigh the fear of domestic issues. World War II is on the horizon and more people are worried about what will happen in terms of our entry into war. So let's kick some, let's go uh, change gears a little bit and talk about what happened with life during the Depression. For women, the total percentage of labor force will increase. Uh, the New Deal reforms helped employ women, but with lower wages than men. So while we're not going to see as much rights uh, given to women, we're going to see some. For Dust Bowl farmers or farmers in the region where there's significant drought or famine, the Great Plains region, in other words, will experience a very, very big period of drought in the 1930s. Poor farming practices will try uh, will lead to dried topsoil, um, and of course, heavy winds will create the dust that will be known in the Dust Bowl. This will push farmers to move west to California for jobs. As I mentioned before, this will be uh, made famous with John Steinbeck's uh, novels of Mice and Men, as well as The Grapes of Wrath. Um, the federal government will pass the Soil Conservation Service in 1935. This will teach and subsidize plain farmers to rotate crops, terrace fields, and contour plowing and plant trees to stop soil erosion and conserve water. So, you know, kind of plant trees to, to serve as filters. So when the dust kind of blows all that dry topsoil, it will be caught up in the trees and prevent further exposure in other areas. So this is some of the scientifically managed farming practices that would be um, suggested during the New Deal. 
For African Americans, despite New Deal legislations, blacks will will be the last to be hired, the first to be fired. Their unemployment is way higher than the national average. So um, I've heard anywhere between 30 to 50 percent are going to be laid off during the Great Depression. So on average, we have 25 percent, but it's a lot higher among the black community. Jobless blacks were often excluded from state and local relief programs because a lot of these people were not New Dealers and they were getting these funds. So they had more discretion in what kind of money or where they're going to allocate their funds. Lynchings will continue as hard times will increase racial tensions, especially in the South. Civil leaders will uh, did not get much done because they did not get much support from Roosevelt, who feared that he would lose support from white Southern Democrats voting blocs. So again, FDR, as progressive as he seems, he's a, still a political animal, and he was very, ups, uh, very worried about losing the Southern Democrat vote. So he didn't kind of publicly support any kind of black civil rights leadership during this time, especially A. Randolph, uh, excuse me, uh, A, what's his name, A. Randolph, Philip. Um, he's going to be a, a very prolific um, civil rights leader during this time. He's going to have... Um, He's going to have a lot of issues with Franklin Delano Roosevelt with res with respect to discrimination in defense industries during World War II, um, uh, with a lot of a lot of you know struggle and a lot of support from his community. He's going to eventually uh, pressure uh, FDR to issue the Executive Order 8802 in 1941, which will of course uh, ban the discrimination of defense industries during World War II. So there will be some minimal successes, but not as much. The WPA and the CCC did not offer blacks employment, and they, they still had the right to be segregated. Individual support from Eleanor and the Secretary of Interior, Harold Ikes. Um, in 1939, African-American singer Marian Anderson was denied entrance to Constitutional Hall in Washington, D.C. So you have people, even within the New Deal, uh, circle that are not going to respect black people. Eleanor Roosevelt and Ikes arranged for Anderson to get a special concert at Lincoln Memorial despite that. So you're going to have some people like Eleanor and the Secretary of Interior, Harold Ikes, that are trying to um, to respect black uh, singers and black people. Um, but it becomes very increasingly uh, difficult because there's such a a variety of opinions concerning black people among New Dealers themselves. So we have progressives like Eleanor Roosevelt and Secretary uh, Harold of Interior Harold Ikes, but many others were not very supportive. Um, over 100 African Americans were appointed to middle-level positions, however, in the federal departments. Mary McLeod uh, Bethnew, for example, invited to the D.C. to direct a division of the National Youth Administration. She established the Federal Council on Negro Affairs to increase black participation in New, New Deal pro programs. And in 1942, as I stated before, the executive order... The black union leader, A. Philip Randolph, will threaten a protest march on Washington, uh, so that will set up a committee and assist minorities in gaining jobs in defense industries. So there are some successes, but it's very little. For Amerindians, long-time Amerindian advocate John Collier was appointed commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1933. This will promote Amer Amerindian participation in WPA and CCC membership and projects, however, very limitedly. 1934, Congress rep repeals the Dawes Act, the one that we discussed prior 
in the Gilded Age uh, podcast and replaced it with the Indian Reorganization Act or the Wheeler-Howard Act, returned lands to the control of tribes and supported preservation of Indian cultures. Critics charged that the act did not provide enough autonomy to Indian tribes, however. So we're moving away from just giving um, plots of land for Indian tribes and under the criteria of assimilation now we're giving them more autonomy but um, as always many people are not going to think that this, this goes far enough um, mexican americans new deal employment programs discriminated against mexican migrant workers thousands were forced to return to mexico uh, because of their competition and there's going to be a lot of violence and tension as a result of this and that ends period 7-5 notes um, have a great day bye